Welcome to the Powering Independence Podcast, insights and ideas for RIAs presented by Dynasty Financial Partners, a podcast dedicated to sharing some of the best practices, fresh thinking, and new perspectives in the independent wealth management industry. Your host for today's episode is Ed Friedman, Director at Dynasty Financial Partners. Welcome to this episode of the Dynasty Powering Independence podcast entitled Catch Me If You Can, Cybersecurity for RIAs. As you can probably guess, the inspiration for the title was the 2002 Spielberg film of the same name. That movie was based on the true life story of Frank Abagnale, a con artist whose main activity was check and identity fraud. Frank was eventually caught by the FBI. But today's version of Catch Me If You Can is cybercrime. And in those cases, most likely, uh, those criminals will never uh, be caught. More often than not, they operate overseas and will never set foot on U.S. soil to perpetrate their crimes. And in fact, in 2014, the FBI created a new most wanted list, totally dedicated to cybercriminals. And the current number one person on that most wanted list is Park Jin. Hyok, I hope I got that right, Park, a North Korean national who I can almost assure you will never be traveling to the U.S. and be apprehended. The best any individual or business can do as it relates to cyber uh, crimes is to focus on prevention and detention. Apprehension for the most part of those criminals, again, is a distant, distant third. RIAs have a daunting task, though. In order to run their business, they have to rely on multiple technologies including email, the internet, vendor websites, just to name a few. The problem is that each of these platforms are the same ones cyber criminals rely on to infiltrate American businesses and homes. This could not be a more timely topic for all of us. We've assembled a great panel for for today's topic. Heather Ostrowski is the CFO of DB Root, an RIA uh, headquartered in Pittsburgh with an additional office in Toledo, Ohio. Heather has a strong finance background, but in the past has served as COO and CCO at DB Root. Heather recently oversaw a full review of DB Root's cybersecurity protocols, and we look forward to her sharing of those findings. Heather holds a BA in economics and a certificate of accounting from the University of Pittsburgh. Next up, we have Adam Mosley. Adam is a managing director for Charles Schwab and Company, and Adam oversees business consulting and education and is responsible for the development of Schwab's technology consulting team nationwide. His team provides one-on-one guidance to advisors on growth, efficiency, technology, and profitability, and Adam joined Schwab way back in 1997. So I'd like to welcome uh, Adam to the podcast. And rounding out our panel is our very own Eric Castillo. Eric is the Chief Technology Officer for Dynasty Financial Partners. And Eric is responsible for Dynasty's technology offering and platform, representing approximately 48 RIA firms and four Dynasty corporate offices. Prior to joining Dynasty, Eric served as CTO and COO for Stellac LLC, which is a global RIA. Currently, Eric is focused on assessing and upgrading Dynasty's technology and cybersecurity platform and providing technology recommendations for the entire Dynasty network. Adam, I'd like to start with you uh, today to help us understand the cyber landscape. We're all aware of the big name breaches, Equifax, Capital One, Marriott, etc., but cybercrime is not solely the domain and risk of large corporations. 
With that being said, what are you seeing as some of the top cyber threats today for RIAs? It's a, uh, it's a good question, Ed, and thank you very much, and thank you for having me. What many find interesting is that far and away, the greatest cybersecurity threat to registered investment advisors today is email. As basic and as, as ridiculous as that might sound, nearly every single advisor data incident that we see in our organization tracks back to an email into an organization or multiple emails into an organization. You know, at issue very often is that we don't hesitate to click on a link or to open an attachment or to respond to what is a fraudulent request for a transaction or for sensitive information. And that's really a behavior that we've been coaching advisors to change for some time now. In fact, we go so far as to talk about email as cyber public enemy number one or the greatest cybersecurity threat to a registered investment advisor's organization. And as we think about email, I think one of the best pieces of advice I could give any advisor is to just go ahead and assume that if it's in your inbox, it's guilty until you prove that it's innocent. And while that might sound a bit extreme, that simple behavior change or becoming a little more skeptical of what's in one's inbox can create just great behaviors in terms of a little bit of a pause before clicking on the link or opening an attachment. And happy to go further on that a little bit later today. No, absolutely. So, Eric, following up on, on Adam's uh, comment, you have the responsibility, number one, of Dynasty Corporate and all the, the folks that work directly with Dynasty. But more importantly, you work with the firms in our network. Um, how are they supposed to protect themselves from this threat that, that Adam's talking about? Right. Ed, again, thank you for having me on, on the podcast. So I think, you know, a good place to start, I would say, is RIAs are regulated entities and the SEC, FINRA, they have uh, good cybersecurity guidelines. Um, also, I would go a step further uh, and say that just relying on the SEC and the FINRA guidelines may not be enough. I think the goal for our network firms is to have just overall good cybersecurity um, hygiene. And so I think that all starts with having a formal cybersecurity program. And program, I mean, not just the policies and procedures that are often kind of highlighted by the SEC, but a real formal effort where all the major stakeholders are involved. That includes not just technology, but also management, the CEO. If there's any incident, it's going to require a participation of the whole firm. So I would argue that it, you have to have kind of a formal cybersecurity program. And then from there, you're going to have the different components, such as your policies and procedures. You're going to have the uh, part that has to do with the technical side of cybersecurity. But I think it's also important to keep in mind that cybersecurity is also kind of a people and management problem. So you can have, you know, we can sit here till we're blue in the face talking about intrusion detection software or all kinds of technologies. But at the end of the day, a big part of the risk and a lot of the attack surf surface that is, um, you know, that bad actors uh, use is, is actually just people and, and management, simple things, the blocking and tackling of cybersecurity, like, as Adam was saying, just making sure that you're not clicking on links, making sure that you're connected to secure Wi-Fi. Just a lot of the low-hanging fruit is there, and you want to be protected on that side because attackers will go for that low-hanging fruit. So that's really good advice, and I think every firm out there should have kind of their cybersecurity protocols, their their uh, procedures uh, and processes. So, Heather, turning to you as kind of the RIA out there, and and as I said in the in the intro, 
Uh, DB Root has two offices, um, always looking to uh, expand. So with that expansion, obviously, becomes more opportunity, if you will, for, for issues. Um, I know that um, DB Root has had some challenges with email, and a lot of that's been caught. <clears throat> Excuse me, not had um, any any lasting issues. But building on Eric's point, how do you as the RIA out there um, deal with not only these threats, creating these cyber policies, but constantly monitoring what you guys are doing and what's happening uh, inside of DB Root? Um, yes. Hi, Ed. Um, thank you for having me. And um, I think the issues that we've been dealing with, as you had mentioned, um, we were the victim of an email hack um, not too long ago. We're actually, as a matter of fact, just wrapping up the entire investigation, um, and that happened in early May. And this is the end of August, and we're just now wrapping up. Um, but what we, we did learn a lot from the cybersecurity engagement with Schwab, um, and we have implemented new procedures and new levels of security um, to hopefully mitigate the risk going forward. But it seems that as soon as you install the next mousetrap, there's there's a bigger mouse. Um, and so, you know, the costs can escalate and the best, probably the best defense um, to Eric and Adam's point is just to simply um, educate the employees. Well, that's great. And, and I think, <clears throat> you know, your point is really well taken, Heather, which is, you know, just when you build a mousetrap, you need to build a better one or find a better one because these cyber criminals are exceptionally um, bright uh, and always looking for that new uh, vulnerability, if you will, inside of a firm. One of the ways I've described it in the past, uh, hearkening back to our grade school days, is it's like a game of dodgeball uh, where all these balls are being thrown at you and, and you can hope to dodge them all. Uh, and kind of not be uh, be knocked out uh, of the game, but they're coming from all directions. So, Adam, you know, building on, on Heather's comment, how do they educate employees? How do they stay that one step ahead if, if they can? Yeah, I'm, so I'm glad this comment and uh, this bit of advice came out so early. It's, it's the single best investment that an advisor can make in the area of cybersecurity. Eric mentioned it in terms of a team approach. Um, Heather framed it in terms of education and awareness. It's that's the way to think about it. You know, the um, this investment in one's people, creating a culture of cybersecurity, um, giving folks the the time and effort the, and energy to do what they can do to protect it, um, creating a sense of uh, engagement and empowerment. These are some of the best investments that an advisor can make. Very often, a firm will think of their people as a as a weak link in the organization, um, especially in the defense against cybercrime, when in reality, through the right education, awareness, empowerment, and so on, you can create what we like to talk about as an incredibly adaptive human firewall, um, likely better and stronger than any technology that could ever be deployed. And, and so often, folks will think of cybercrime or cybersecurity as an information technology matter, which in fact, of course it is, but it's even more so a human capital and human resources thing. So we, we uh, give advice to, to advisors in terms of when, when and where to make that next investment in cybersecurity. Let 
uh, education, awareness, empowerment, you know, let that be, you know, a place where you double down and, and make that next bet. Great. So with that in mind, um, if your first and maybe best line of defense, uh, because I recently read a statistic that kind of validated, Adam, your comment, which is 71% of kind of cyber crimes start with phishing emails. So if you are, if your first and best defense are the employees uh, in the firm, and we talk about education, what are the educational steps that we might take to kind of get them there? Yeah, I would say take advantage of everything that's made available to you from your custodial partners um, and, and from others. There's a wealth of tools and information you know, that's out there. If we, if we focus on email for one minute and if uh, folks agree that that is the uh, cyber public enemy that, that we talk about uh, as it being, you know, there's a great way to educate around that. So first of all, advisors are bombarded with phishing emails every single day. Those, each and every one of them, are a great example to bring to staff meetings, to show to staff to dissect in, in real time, and to also celebrate the person that got in the way of it and stopped it you know, from happening. There's also providers out there that can be engaged to provide tests into an organization. They are highly effective forms of training and education, by the way. We subscribe to them. Uh, at Schwab, we're tested almost on a every other week basis, but they're um, emails sent inbound to our organization, and if a user clicks on a link, if a user opens an attachment, they're met with some training and education on it. And very often, too, their management is made aware of the, uh, the noncompliance. Um, and what we tend to see when these tests are deployed, you, know, you might have a, a reasonable noncompliance rate on test number one. On test number two, it, it's almost cut in half, and by the time you make it to test number three, you're almost down to zero in terms of noncompliance. And it, they tend to be, again, highly effective forms of training and education and also relatively inexpensive as well. Well, yes. with that being as said, an, I'm sorry. Go ahead, Heather. Oh, that's okay. Um, as a matter of fact, we just upgraded our firewall um, to include that particular training, that, that particular level of security where if the phishing email does come in, it will still go through. It will be flagged by the firewall. It will go through, and then the user, if they do click on that link, will get a notification, as will the IT team. And it was, it was very inexpensive in comparison to what an actual breach costs oh, to would, investigate. No, I would certainly think so. Um, you know, it's interesting. <clears throat> Just today, I sent an email to somebody and got a response. And for the very first time, I saw this disclaimer, and I'll read it to everybody right now. This email is from an external source, exercise caution regarding links and attachments. I'd never seen that type of disclaimer before. Eric? You know, the other thing that we're seeing is that I think the old model on phishing was just based on you getting perhaps a random link or something that you weren't quite sure what it was. It didn't look familiar, but you were clicking on it anyway. But now cybersecurity, you know, the, the hackers have gotten so sophisticated that now this has become kind of like just now we have like we have smart lights, we have smart phishing. So what they'll do is they'll do some research on the person that they're targeting and look at their social media, look at public information that is available and make those phishing attacks very specific to that person, making it even harder to resist. So I think a key element of, of the phishing training, which we use at Dynasty, also uh, like, you know, similar to Heather and what Adam was mentioning, is to keep in mind that you can have emails that look very, very authentic and that are 
tailored to your friends, to your colleagues, to things that are of interest to you, making it even harder. I personally, being a tech person, uh, you know, I've worked with Amazon Web Services for a number of years, and I almost myself clicked on a phishing link that was an AWS link, you know, phishing attack. Um, but I use AWS. Who knows if AWS, some kind of database was hacked and they knew that I was there, me and probably the other millions of people that use it. And so it isn't anymore these random emails from, you know, that we've all seen and, and you know, with the weird links and the weird URLs that are baked into the links. These are full-blown almost like graphical emails that look exactly like the authentic version of the email. So it's increasingly uh, important for people to have this, um, it, it keep this in mind uh, whenever they're opening any email to Adam's point. So Adam, just to ask you, building on, on what Eric said, what's their purpose? I mean, they, they send a phishing email. Obviously it may be to click on a link, which I would think. Sure would download malware or something along those lines, or to Eric's point, impersonating, if you will, somebody with a set of instructions mm -hmm. that may not be legitimate. I mean, what are their end goals? Yeah, there's an example that I want to share uh, that, that I think uh, expands on the, the example that Eric shared, and it's actually one that we're seeing time and time again affect advisors that we work with. In this case, it's an email that comes from Microsoft Office 365. And there too, presumably, maybe there's a list that they're working from that's deliberately targeting, targeting users of Microsoft Office 365. But in this example, users are, are met with an email from Microsoft and it asks them to reset their credentials or maybe their credentials have, have been expired or they're locked out. Whatever the case, they're prompted by way of that email to click on a link. It advances them out to Microsoft's website the user enters in their credentials, they hit submit. Only in this case, the email is not from Microsoft, uh, and the website they're directed to is not the Microsoft website. It's a brilliantly cloned version of that. And what the user's done in that case is they've handed over their email credentials over to the fraudster, over to the hacker, and then what they do is they sit inside of those email accounts, and they're surfing those email accounts. Um, sometimes they're watching all of the traffic that's going in and out of those email boxes. And very often they're looking for sensitive, personally identifiable client information, and they'll use that for malicious purposes. Sometimes that's to conduct wire fraud. Sometimes that is around personal identity theft. Whatever the case, that's one of the, the types of threats that we're seeing time and time again. And just, just today, I reviewed an email of a report that I get on a monthly basis that talks about the advisor data incidents that we're seeing in our organization. And nearly every one of them was some sort of email account takeover that referenced back to the same instance of Microsoft Office 365. So that's a bit of advice for users listening, is that in the event you receive emails like that, be suspect of them, delete them. If they're important, they'll come back. Uh, but better off deleting them, be suspect. Treating them as guilty, as I, as I said a little bit earlier. They're presumed guilty uh, before proven innocent. That's right. I guess. And I, I see this as a version of the man in the, in the middle attack. Right. So, you know, I come from a software background and it's all about encryption. Right. Nowadays, when you go to websites, they're all encrypted and using HTTPS, TLS. Um, that is the kind of cybersecurity version of man in the middle where you now your emails. It's not just that you're sending data to Chase and then somebody's maybe looking at your account information. 
now somebody's actually broken into and is sitting between you and all the email traffic that is going in and out. So I think, again, to the broader point, the attacks get more sophisticated um, and, and these these attacks evolve. And what used to be your classic man in the middle from five, 10 years ago is no longer the same man in the middle attack that we see today. Shifting for a second away from email, I think the, the best advice for uh, everybody listening is just lock yourself in a closet uh, and turn the light off and you don't have to worry about being hacked. But turning away from uh, email for a second, we hear um, the phrase malware sure. uh, all the time. Um, and whether it's a malware or it's a ransomware we were talking about um, earlier, um, what are the risks that the RIAs face out there from kind of these other attacks? Yeah, when I think of malicious software, you know, there's a few different categories. And you know, years ago, we did see a number of instances of ransomware. In fact, I, I used to ask in every setting I was in, public settings and whatnot, for those to raise their hand that had been uh, affected by ransomware. I stopped counting as I moved into the 60s hmm. on that. And those were just advisors that I would uh, personally come, on, come in contact with. There's different versions of malicious software that are out there. Very often they're delivered uh, through uh, malicious emails or, or links or, that are in those emails or attachments. But something else that we've seen along the lines of malicious software is that I think something that many are familiar with, but it's keylogger technology. And so it's a good example of the type of software that's out there where if this malicious software is installed, be it on a personal computer, be it on a company, a digital asset, a, a work computer, um, what it has the potential to do is to track every keystroke on that particular keyboard and to send that information then overseas so that those those fraudsters or, or hackers, if you will, are able to use that to, by and large, gain access to the individual's online accounts and then get in there again, mine them for whatever might be valuable in there in terms of information. Well, that's scary. Sure. Um, Eric, what, what are you seeing out there? as, you know, either different technologies or different approaches to protecting systems from malware? So in terms of, you know, I think when you're trying to protect yourself of malware, the first thing that comes to my mind anyway, and something that you read a lot about is this whole issue of patch management. Um, you know, there's, there's obviously we all have, um, you know, in, in cybersecurity terms of what it's called an endpoint, and that, that endpoint is running software. And you want to make sure that you have the latest version of your software uh, installed, whether it's operating system, but it isn't just operating system. It can be a third-party software. Um, you know, when, when, when you get that notification, even on your phone, that says, please install this latest uh, operating system, it's not to be taken lightly. And the same thing applies in the work environment. So we use a number of technologies uh, in, in Dynasty, and we recommend to our network also that, that really makes sure that you're using the latest uh, software. There's zero-day exploits that, that are, um, that are uh, targeted by hackers. Uh, it's important to always keep your operating system um, uh, up to date. And a lot of the press that you read uh, on hacking and on attacks, you know, later they do a postmortem and they find that it was an, a system that hadn't been patched in a year or six months. You know, again, back to the low-hanging fruit analogy, you know, hackers will look for these kinds of systems um, and as long as you are update, you're able to shield yourself and then they'll just move on and look for the next system that's out there especially high-value targets, big enterprises where having patch management systems are much more complicated than in a, a, a smaller firm such as the ones in our network. 
Adam, coming to you for a second, though. Um, when I started uh, in the business, uh, we worked on Quotron machines that were in the office. And at one time, I was a revolutionary because I got a massive compact portable plus computer that looked like a big typewriter that I would carry home every day. But that world has changed. Um, in the old days, when I started, my workstation stayed on my desk, did not come home with me uh, at night. Obviously, there were no smartphones or anything along those lines. But today, um, RIAs, more often than not, bring their computers, bring their mobile devices home with them, sure. and maybe connecting to uh, Wi-Fi or, or uh, networks that have not been, right. you know, to Eric's point, scrubbed and, and protected. Um, what additional risk does that run? How does an RIA protect themselves from kind of infiltration that way? Sure. W one should be particularly careful when using public Wi-Fi. In fact, uh, we, we ourselves try to stay away from it. If, if it's public, th the issue here is that we just don't know the security that's running behind it. We don't know if it's up to standard. Um, we don't know if it's using the latest encryption. In many cases, we don't even know if it's a legitimate network. It's, it's surprisingly easy for a fraudster to create a wireless hotspot and allow others to attach onto it, and they can name it whatever they want, and they can use a very recognizable name that, in, that individuals uh, might just trust um, and uh, you know, be socially engineered, if you will, into, into trusting. And the issue here is if that is, in fact, a, a illegitimate network hosted by a fraudster, or if it's a weak public wireless uh, or Wi-Fi network that a fraudster is sitting within, they have the potential to see all of that traffic, to watch that tra internet traffic, to download and cache that internet traffic, and then, and then to use it for, uh, for malicious purposes. So we suggest staying off of Wi-Fi altogether, using cellular instead, using our iPhones, our Android devices as a personal hotspot, because that is much more secure. Now that, that actually works a fair percentage of the time, but not all the time. So I think it's important to talk about what do you do in the event you need to be on public Wi-Fi. Maybe you don't have a cellular connection or the signal's too weak. In that case, and actually I would say in, in every case, make sure you're running a type of technology called a VPN, a virtual private network. Its sole purpose is to encrypt the communications that are happening between your device and the destination device across the internet. And when using this type of technology, and in the event there is a, a fraudster, a hacker sitting on that network, they're simply going to go elsewhere and they're going to look for lower hanging fruit. So it's a great way to secure yourself when, when online. And these VPNs, and there are many of them, these virtual private networks, you can pull down apps from the various app exchanges. Um, reading reviews is a great way to uh, you know, find out some of, some of those that are very good. And, and most, if not all, IT providers have a preference here in terms of what to use. So it's a, it's a great place to start. Great. Heather, turning to you, um for a moment, you you opened up by saying that you've gone through the uh, the cybersecurity consulting engagement with with Schwab, and I know that you found some kind of interesting uh, results and and some scary results um, coming out of that. What have you learned, and that you're doing differently today than you did before, kind of going through that engagement? Um, I think, yes, to start off, um, it was quite a terrifying experience, <laughs> um, just learning exactly how many holes there are in the Swiss cheese um, today, which can change tomorrow. Um, 
But I think the best the best thing that we got out of the engagement, which by the way um, was a 58 item checklist to start with, that these are things you need to consider. Um, and from there, um, you can build a roadmap. And I think that that was probably the most positive the most positive result from the entire engagement. Um, there is a lot of heavy lifting, but it enabled us to get a solid snapshot of the controls and the software and the processes we do or don't have in place. And then we just got an incredible education on best practices and low-hanging fruit that we may have missed um, to create a roadmap um, for implementing the new processes. Um, we've done things such as disable all of the USB ports in all of the desktops and laptops um, so that we can't get a virus in that way. I mean, you know, that's, that's pretty low-hanging fruit. Um, we've installed DLP software so that if people are not sending or forget to send and secure emails going out, they can be caught. Um, we also have the warning bar um, across the top of our all of our incoming emails, like, hey, this is from outside, think about it before you open or click. Um, and even just from a server firewall perspective, we've also increased the security there. Yeah, interesting point you said about secured uh, email and, and files. Uh, again, in preparation for today's podcast, uh, I came across a statistic which I thought was a little startling, that, and that is 21% of files uh, aren't protected. Um, and, and that leads to kind of this data breach uh, issue. Um, and Adam, if you could talk a little bit about the concerns around data. I mean, it's, it's the protection of the data, as you mentioned before, that's paramount. And we mm -hmm. have this responsibility to all of our clients to make sure that we maintain the privacy uh, and protect that data. Um, so talk a little bit about, you know, kind of what you're seeing out there on, on data breaches, what are the best practices and, and procedures to uh, kind of guard against it? Sure, I, you know, I, I like to start at a very fundamental level here first when I talk about data. And, uh, you know, this is one of the things that Heather went through as, as part of the experience that she went through in, in the cybersecurity consulting engagement and it's a proper inventory. Uh, it, within that inventory, which includes hardware, software, the third parties and vendors that one firm works with, um, also includes data. And it's really important to understand where data lives within your network. Um, sometimes that's spread across multiple machines, um, but, but getting an idea of where that data lives helps you understand then how to best protect it and what sort of measures to put in place. Or it might lead to some really great considerations around centralizing data. And not to get too technical here, but increasingly we're seeing firms embrace things like a virtual desktop infrastructure, which is a fabulous solution for centralizing data on a server where it never lives on an individual's workstation. Wh whatever the case, there are ways to uh, really protect the data that exists on individual machines. And this takes us into a conversation by and large on encryption. You mentioned a highly mobile environment that we all live in now. Um, personally, my computer comes with me everywhere I go. It no longer just sits at my desk overnight. It comes home with me every day. And to protect that information that lives on that machine, we and, and many other organizations use encryption technology so that in the event that machine is lost or stolen, the information that may be stored on that local drive 
is almost inaccessible by anyone who shouldn't have access to it. It becomes nearly impossible to strip the data off of that drive. And this protection measure, while it may sound highly sophisticated, is for advisors, by and large, nothing more than a checkbox in something called enabling BitLocker encryption. And it's a great way and a, and a uh, what we would consider to be now a standard operating procedure in terms of securing the data that lives on particular mobile devices. Um, but not just mobile devices. We're seeing this type of technology deployed on workstations. And many, too, are even putting it on the server uh, so that in the event that device is stolen, you know, the information that on it, that's on it, again, is inaccessible. Great. I know, Eric, um, at Dynasty, we went to a cloud solution we did. You know, probably three or four years ago so that no files, theoretically, should sit on an individual's laptop. It's all uh, right. up in the cloud. That's correct. Um, what else are, are, is Dynasty doing to kind of protect data? So, I mean, to, to Adam's point, we're using a lot of what he just mentioned. So um, we have virtualized a file server. Um, and that isn't necessarily the only solution. You can have also something that looks local but is also in the cloud. Uh, so there's a number of solutions as, as this is such a common issue. We also have, uh, um, you know, we use encryption on our local workstations, and we also have software that tells us who isn't using encryption. If, for example, a new device were to come on board, there's always that human error factor in cybersecurity where for some reason we didn't click, you know, that checkbox. Uh, we have alerts and reporting internally that allows us to um, see who is running in, in encryption locally and, 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 and who is not. Obviously, our data in the cloud is encrypted. The data, it's not just where it is at rest, but also in transit, that has to be encrypted. Um, to Adam's earlier point also, in terms of the data and data flows, it's very important in an exercise that I've done at Dynasty since joining, is to understand the flow of that data. Um, it, not just internally, right, but also with third-party vendors, which is such a big part of, of um, you know, it's very important to the SEC. They right. talk about it a lot. Um, so, you know, this kind of leads us to this whole vendor due diligence, but, you know, sticking to the data side, it's just, we, we need to understand starting from the custodian and, you know, as being the kind of the books and records, from there, where is this data going? And follow those flows and make sure we, we understand exactly what each party along that chain is doing with the data and making sure that they're taking the necessary precautions and measures to make sure that data is protected. And adding to that, on our own network at Dynasty, we use two-factor authentication. That's correct. Um, very often. I know, Adam, that's something that, that you believe in very strongly. I do. I do. In fact, the way I, uh, I tend to talk about multi-factor authentication, and just for definition for those that might not be as familiar with it, in addition to one's user ID and password, which is something that we know, multi-factor or two-factor authentication you know, brings along with it something that you have in your possession. And that might be a simple text that goes to your, your mobile device. It might be um, a code that is generated off of a token that you have. Um, increasingly, there, there are apps that are run on your mobile devices, too, that generate a code. Um, the beauty of these is that when using them, your password is actually constantly changing because what these what you do with these is you append this code to your password, and they're incredibly important. You know, we've talked about uh, I used an example earlier of uh, credentials that were handed over by way of a, a phishing attack. Um, in the event that one's user ID and password are compromised, these multi-factor authentications are in fact the only thing that will keep a fraudster out of your online account. So they're they're critical. 
um, increasingly they're they're more and more available. So I, I'd like to um, make sure that folks are using those everywhere it's made available. That includes personal accounts. And uh, I've gone so far as to say that if one is not using that multi-factor authentication, yet it's made available to them, they should consider themselves behaving recklessly in terms of online internet access. They're really that important. Great. Um, Heather, turning to you for a second, um, Eric just talked about, you know, it's, it's not only important to make sure that your network and what you're working off of is secure, but also the vendors that you're working with in order to support uh, the business at, at DB Root on a daily basis. What, if anything, are you doing around kind of vendor due diligence um, with reporting platforms, you know, uh, financial planning, all the different applications uh, that you use in order to run the business day to day? Well, fortunately for um, DB Root, since we are affiliated with the Dynasty Network, um, Dynasty does per perform a lot of the um, due diligence on the vendors. Um, so we only have less than a handful of vendors that we actually have to perform due diligence on. Well, great. Then I'll turn to Eric. Eric, what are you doing <laughs> to help the network firms on, on the due diligence of the vendors? Right. So th this is a major priority, not just for Dynasty, but also for regulators. That's how important it is. So we do, obviously, an extensive uh, due diligence process. Um, that actually starts before any contract or any formal agreement or arrangement is reached. So it's basically almost required identification to come in the door is for you to be able to provide as a potential partner to Dynasty and or the Dynasty Network um, a very comprehensive set of cybersecurity policies and procedures that you're, that you're following. Uh, we ourselves have an extensive questionnaire as part of this due diligence process, and, and the, the firms have to go through that. And we also take the um, extra step of making sure that those firms has, have been audited by third parties. This is a so-called SOC 2, which is very popular. Um, and that the purpose of that report is essentially to tell a, a data owner, hey, this third party has the policies, procedures, um, all of the, you know, a, a good cybersecurity framework, if you will, and you can entrust them with your data. So for us, this is at the core of what we do. Um, this is usually an effort between technology and compliance. That's how important it is. And, and, and you know, we, we take pride that we only partner with uh, firms that, that have met this standard. Great. Adam, you touched uh, a little while ago uh, on the word password. Sure. Um, and we all now live in a password world. Um, I, I read recently that by the year 2020, worldwide, there will be about 300 billion passwords in use, both by humans and by machines. So if you could share with us um, some best practices sure. around password protection, I'm going to assume it's not my um, intellectually uh, dishonest approach of just changing the last letter or going from XYZ1 to XYZ2. 
uh, when I want to change the password. Well, we've all done that. Uh, we're, we're all guilty of that. Some of us continue to be guilty of that in some way, shape, or form. You know, just for some historical context, the general guidance around passwords, and this may have come from the National Institute of Standards and Technology, um, which is a major player in the, in the cybersecurity space, was that passwords, by and large, should meet four main criteria. They should be long, they should be complex, it, you should um, change them often, and they should be unique. And uh, those, those were the general standards that we had uh, understood and, and by and large lived by for some period of time. It was about a couple of years ago now that organization came back and, and uh, they came back with a slight change. And they said, well, maybe the password shouldn't be changed every 90 days and maybe the passwords shouldn't be overly complex. And, and you, you said it, Ed, um, those two requirements in particular were creating some really bad behaviors because to make them easier, folks would just go in and change the last digit. So that's what, that's what we were seeing. So they, uh, they came back with some revised guidance, and they said passwords should be long and passwords should be unique. So I want to talk about bo both of those there, and we'll start with the length. So first on length, uh, the days of the six- to eight-character password are over, and, and folks need to understand that there are technologies out there used by fraudsters that can take that password and crack it in a matter of minutes. But when you move it on to 12... 15 characters, that same technology, uh, w when trying to crack that password, it might take years or even decades. So length is incredibly important. And this takes us to the advent of something not called a password, but a passphrase, because folks begin to wonder, well, how am I going to remember a 12 to 15 character password, especially when I make them unique? And I'll talk about that again in just a minute. But if you think about a passphrase, it becomes much easier because you're taking a, a collection of words that are meaningful to you, easy for you to remember, but difficult for others to guess. You, you delete the spaces in between, bring them together, and you have a very simple, quick passphrase. And, and again, that could be incredibly difficult for anyone to crack and also easy for the user to remember. So remember, length is going to trump just about everything. You should think about general password management. On the topic of passwords being unique, and this, one's, this one is equally important, um, this another common behavior that, that they were seeing um, in terms of you know what not to do with passwords is reusing a password. And we, we all do this um, or we have all done this um, because it's simply easier to do. And as, as we have uh, more and more passwords, they become difficult to remember. So you end up using the same one over and over again. And uh, I think an important bit of guidance here uh, or information is for folks to understand that when, you know, among other data points, user IDs and passwords are exfiltrated out of an organization that's been breached. And you can think of any one of the major um, uh, data breaches that are out there. When user IDs and passwords are targeted, compromised, and exfiltrated, it's not so that the hacker can break into that user's LinkedIn account. It's not that at all. It's so they can take that user ID and password and try it somewhere else. And this is what's called a credential replay event. And very often, they'll take that information, they'll use it at banks, uh, credit cards, financial institutions, brokerage um, um, uh, institutions, and, and whatnot, because they know that some percentage of the time, that same user ID and password is going to work over there. And then once they're in, they can cause all sorts human of Human nature is human there. nature. That's right. So well, another bit of advice is, at least for one's sensitive accounts, um, this includes email, by the way, but most certainly includes financial institution accounts, just make sure that passwords are unique, that you're not reusing them. If it's, a, if it's a news, uh, online news resource, maybe that's not as important, but certainly for the financial institution and sensitive information accounts. Yeah, just to, to add on to Adam's comment. So last year, 
uh, dynasty ran a series of, of programs around the country called Optimizing the Billion Dollar Firm. And we were fortunate enough to have Adam as a speaker at a couple of those programs. And I have to give you kudos, Adam, right after that. I did change my password. I picked a, uh, a line in a song. Uh, I think it's about 18 characters uh, or so. Um, the problem is I kind of forget which different applications I'm using it on. Yeah. So in order for somebody like myself, who can barely remember what I had for breakfast this morning, how do we kind of manage all the different passwords that make up our lives? Yeah, yeah. and we, uh, we talked about that as well. And those were, those were great events and, and really appreciated the questions that we had there. And to better manage that, this is what brings us into the uh, area of password managers. Very often we're asked about password managers. These are online tools uh, that one can purchase and they should be purchased. We don't recommend that folks go after you know, the free versions of these technologies that are out there, but um, use of a password manager can make it much easier to manage one's passwords. Um, I haven't looked at the number of mine recently, but I probably have in upwards of 150 different user IDs and passwords um, that I personally store in my password manager, and I find them to be great tools. So first of all, they are better at securing the information than I ever was. It was probably three years ago, I'd use an Excel document, it was password protected, and that served me well. But I got to a point where I understood there's probably an organization out there doing a better job of protecting this information. And that's what helped me cross that divide and begin using a password manager. The benefits, though, go well beyond just security. These are applications that are great at helping um, database this information, make it easy to access. They can police your passwords for you. So in the event I do reuse a password, my password manager is going to alert me to that and prompt me to change, change that. And I can also plug in some parameters, too, where it, become very, it, it can be very helpful in terms of generating passwords for me. So I find the tool incredibly useful. We're seeing advisory organizations increasingly use these type of technologies. So there are not just um, individual versions of this or personal versions of this. There are versions of these that are commercial grade uh, and made available to uh, small businesses. And the beauty of those uh, types of technologies in a business setting is they can be centrally administered such that the call it the chief information security officer at the firm, can be in control of that application and can dictate who has access to it or who has access to what particular passwords, um, what the individual can see in the application, and also, of course, disable access in the, in the event we have an employee leave an organization, that access can be turned off immediately there. So we think they're great applications, and, and we do see them used often in advisory businesses. Great. Eric, as a technology guy, I'm going to ask you to look three to five years in the future. Does facial recognition do away with the need for passwords and, and all of that? And if so, will our faces be hacked? The answer to the last one is the easiest one, and that is yes. <laughs> you know, it, it reminds me of when Apple came out with Face ID, and about two days later, somebody in, I think it was overseas, had come up with an exact replica of, you know, Hollywood style, you know, replica of someone else's face and they had already fooled the face ID system. You know, I'm not smart enough to to predict whether face ID is going to take over. Um, you know, I, I think it has to be probably a combination of things. So I can't see multi-factor going away soon. Um, I think there's a distinction here between yeah, our personal devices and the technology that's there, but something in an enterprise setting, you really want to make sure you, that you have uh, the latest and greatest and that you're using the most robust 
um, you know, technology out there uh, to make sure that people are not reusing their passwords, uh, that the people are rotating them. And we, we have all of these, you know, everything that Adam just mentioned is something that we either have at Dynasty or are looking into to just continue to enhance the offering. I think one point to bring with the whole authentication thing is if you have one password or one whatever it is and you reuse that somewhere else, now without thinking about it, you have brought that third party into the picture. And so if that third party is compromised in any way, now your entire, for example, uh, professional password, uh, uh, the professional passwords that you're using, those have been compromised. So this whole issue about reusing the same authentication mechanism, I think is going to be a subject of debate and, and, and I'm all, I'm all for, you know, changing, uh, you know, whether it's passwords or multi-factor, whatever mechanisms are there, just changing, evolving, rotating, uh, the different ways of being able to log into us, um, you know, especially an enterprise environment, which I think has a higher bar, I would argue, than just something that a device that is physically close to us. Um, I, I think, you know, the, 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 the set of technology has to be a little bit different. Great. Heather, you mentioned before that going through the consulting engagement with Schwab, I think there was a 58-point or 52-point checklist um, that came out of that, and, and it scared you a, a little bit as you went through it. What did you at DB Root do differently or are doing differently now than you were before, number one? And then number two, the second part of the question is, going forward, what type of protocols have you put in place to constantly look at and test uh, the cybersecurity of the firm? To answer the first question, the processes that we are doing differently are the basics, the low-hanging fruit um, the multi-factor authentication, the DLP software, disabling the USB ports, um, just adding additional layers of, you know, antivirus, malware, it, those sorts of things, more, more formal employee education, and basically just kind of tightening up the processes that we already had in place. And we probably have, according to the roadmap, another six more months' worth of work to do. And then from then, it just becomes maintenance. Um, we're looking at automating some of the systems and processes. Um, the vulnerability scans, for example, those can be done quarterly on almost an automated basis. Uh, we're working with our third-party IT provider um, to get a lot of these up and running. Um, and have you and instituted password protocols um, going forward where different folks in DBR have to be uh, a little bit more focused on the quality of the password? Yes, we have, we have already implemented that to a degree, but we as well are looking into the password manager. Um, that's one of probably the next steps um, now that we have the email, email security probably as good as we can get it at this point. Um, but probably, I think, even before the Schwab um, engagement, probably the most important thing and most valuable thing that we did was um, we added a cybersecurity policy. And that has turned out to pay dividends because if there is a breach, if there is a hack, 
um, not only do they do the policies provide education, they also um, provide a lot of benefit, you know, in just, number one, assessing and dealing with the breach, but also covering the cost of it. It's a, it's a great point that um, I've seen so often overlooked. And one of the 58 control statements that are reviewed in, in the assessment uh, and in the engagement that, that Heather mentions is one that specifically speaks to cybersecurity insurance. And, you know, a, as she stated, a beautiful benefit of engaging a cybersecurity insurance provider is that um, they will very often make available a, at least the framework of an incident response plan. And uh, it makes sense when you think about it, because in the event of an incident and one that they're going to be financially and potentially on the hook for themselves, the insurance company, they're going to want to make sure that you follow a very specific set of instructions, including how and to who you communicate about it, even down to what you say uh, about it. And, uh, you know, an incident response plan for one to build that out on their own, that's a pretty big undertaking. So being able to leverage the resources of a big insurance company uh, to help with that, I think, can go a, a very long way. So I'm, I'm glad to hear that she mentions that. I, I think it's also worth mentioning to our listeners that there's a number of resources that are out there. Um, you know, to Adam's earlier point when he mentioned NIST, you know, there's the very well-known NIST um, cybersecurity framework, which, you know, we use as as a dynasty and many firms, you know, we, we engaged a while back. Uh, and I think everybody should do this, you know, have a third party go in always what we call the red team approach and do a full security review. And th- basically it was the NIST framework and they go in and check to see, um, you know, how well you're employing that. Um, and NIST also has a number, and, and I'm happy to give the resources. That's part of what we do on the cybersecurity effort at Dynasty, appoint our, our, our network partners to in the right direction to the different resources that are out there, NIST being one of the main ones. They also have information on, you know, incident response they have a very uh, thorough guide to recovery. They have the framework. There's a number of resources out there. Uh, there's another one that I love to follow. I've been following for a number of years called the Center for Internet Security. It, it, it was born out of a consortium that included SANS, which is a big cyber sec- player in the cybersecurity space. They have the top 20 controls. Um, we have a, a lot of that documentation. So any of our listeners can reach out to us and we can provide. But all of these uh, different um, uh, nonprofit uh, organizations that are focused on cybersecurity have uh, all these resources that you can use, and we do at Dynasty as the basis for coming up with a cybersecurity framework in general, and then including the policies and procedures, incident response, disaster recovery, business continuity, again, looping at the SEC and FINRA. You know, when you get audited by the SEC and, and, and RIAs, eventually do. These are the kinds of things that they look for. And they themselves talk about NIST uh, and, and, and the different resources that are out there that you can use um, as a basis for your own individual kind of customized framework and procedures. Great. I'm glad you mentioned uh, NIST, which again is the National Institute of Standards and Technology, uh, because I happen to have with me the six points of the framework for, uh, for NIST. And just for everybody listening, it's identify, understand what a financial advisor needs to track, mon- monitor, or mitigate. Then it's protect, develop appropriate safeguards for advisor data. It's detect, implement activities to identify an actual breach. 
Then it's respond, develop responses to cybersecurity events, and last is recover, implement ongoing operations to get better and reduce the impact of a successful breach. So there is uh, the NIST uh, framework, and, and certainly they are one of the best guiding uh, principles uh, out there. We, we think so, too. Um, the, the assessment, the engagement that Heather mentioned, those 58 control statements, those are right out of the, the NIST cybersecurity framework. And I think Eric mentioned it as well. That this is also the very framework that the SEC has used all along as part of the um, examination work they've done in the area of cybersecurity. So there's lots of good reasons to adhere to this particular cybersecurity framework, among the many great ones that are out there. Adam, um, Heather talked about some of the procedures that they've taken um, since going through this engagement. One of them was locking down the USB mm -hmm. uh, ports. And I'm now going to turn to you and ask you to tell one of my favorite stories mm. as it relates to kind of USB uh, drives and flash drives. Sure, sure. It's, it's a fun one to talk about, and then there's a good movie behind it. Um, j just for maybe a, a bit of context on this one, you know, USB drives are, um, you know, those should too be considered guilty until they're proved that it's innocent. And, and I'm talking about like the thumb drives here that, that we see everywhere. So first of all, in terms of data exfiltration, many know this, but it's worth mentioning, it's fascinating the amount of data that could be so quickly moved onto these thumb drives without any detection whatsoever. They're, they're, the, they're the size of a thumb. They can be lost, and very often they are, and rarely do I see them encrypted. So all of that information that's on them is, is at risk. Um, so lots of reasons not to allow those in the environment, hence Heather's mention of disabling those. And anyone running a Windows Server network, that too is a checkbox within a Windows policy that simply disables them so that they can no longer be used in an environment that just disables the USB drive access. So it's one of the things that, that uh, we recommend under the category of data loss protection measures uh, very specifically. They're also vehicles for malicious software delivery. Uh, and I think this is a bit of the story that, that you wanted me to share here. So for many, many years, um, hackers have been known to use these to their advantage. And what they tend to do is to um, throw them in parking lots, to throw them inside fishbowls at trade shows and whatnot, uh, to throw infected USB drives, uh, USB drives that are infected with malicious software that you know, maybe it's keylogger technology or it's a type of other um, uh, malicious software that might otherwise open a window into that organization so someone could come in from the outside and compromise the computer network. And the, and the story that, uh, that you want me to tell is one regarding the uh, Iranian um, centrifuge facilities, their nuclear centrifuge facilities, and, and how um, they were set back at, at the very least a number of years. It could be many, many, uh, or much, much longer than that, you know, as a result of malicious software that made its way into their organization. And as I understand it, and, uh, you know, it's a bit opaque in terms of what uh, happened or as how it happened. As it probably should be. Yeah, that's right. But um, so malicious software was uh, uh, had infiltrated that organization, made its way into their systems, and destroyed uh, some of the coding behind the um, their methodology for um, uh, development of of uh, I guess it would be uranium in this case, right? Um, in their in their uh, centrifuges, and uh, you know the the takeaway here is it wasn't a, a Delta Force team that went in with USB drives in their pockets and plugged it in, uh, or, or went in and destroyed that. Um, you know, they managed to work in a USB drive. They, whoever that is, right, could have been our, our own uh, intelligence agencies, I'm, I'm not sure. But um, a malicious uh, software called the Stuxnet 
virus is what was used within that organization. And uh, it was a very sophisticated militia software that um, wreaked havoc upon those facilities, uh, deleted its tracks you know, on the way out. And, and as I understand it, and as the movie Zero Days uh, talks about it, it made its way in by way of a USB drive. So that's a really good and very big and visible example of, of malicious software that exists on these types of devices and lots of good reasons to stay away from them altogether and to, to disable the, uh, the drives that would otherwise use them. And it's a great piece of advice because uh, certainly within our industry, we all go to industry conferences and we all right. walk by those tables that have, you know, the giveaways of the USB drives and you just never know uh, what's on uh, any of those drives. Right. So one of my favorite stories, I appreciate uh, you sharing it with me sure. again and, and with everybody else uh, listening to the podcast. So we've spent now about 45 minutes or so um, scaring the heck out of everybody uh, listening. And now I want to ask each one of you what keeps you up at night. Uh, Eric, for you overseeing not only Dynasty, but our network of, of nearly 50 firms, Adam, um, you working with our RIAs all across the country and your team, and Heather, you uh, obviously uh, being that RIA uh, that, that uh, runs the risk of being vulnerable. So, Eric, I'm going to turn to you first. What is it that keeps you up at night? <laughs> you know, I think it's an overused cliche in cybersecurity, but it's just very relevant. You know, a cybersecurity event, let's call it that, uh, is a matter not of if, but when. Right. So if you look at some of the major Fortune 500 companies, even companies, you know, a company like Microsoft spends over a billion dollars in security. You look at Microsoft, you have Sony, you have Hewlett Packard, even IBM, the SEC itself, you know, even following the framework, you know, what do all these firms have in common other than spending money? It's that they've all been compromised in some way. So I think that it's it's just the nature of the job is always going to be your concern, what could happen. And I think the best that we can do is everything that we've talked about today, which is to try to do everything in your power, have a good cybersecurity program, a good use a good framework, put all the controls. Remember that cybersecurity is not just about technology um, and, it, you know, and scanning ports on, on your firewall. It's also about people. Uh, remembering that there's a lot of uh, attack surface out there, which is just commonly targeted. And simple things, password reuse uh, being a very common one. Um, just lots of, lots of small things that you can do um, that have big impact. And so I think that just naturally, you, you know, you're always concerned that something, someone could reuse a password, that something could happen, that someone could click on a phishing link. You know, these are the things that you, you try to resolve, some through technology and the other ones by training your workforce as best as you can. Great. Adam, what you, keeps you up at night? You know, I, um, I feel like the message can't get out there enough. That, that's the concern. It's it's every week we'll see some sort of attack that's happened on an advisor's business. Um, it, it could be an advisor data incident where their own systems are compromised. Far too often we see instances of wire fraud in our organization. Uh, and, and almost 100% of the time these, are, these are, are made their way into an advisor's organization by way of an email where an um, end investor's email account was compromised uh, by a fraudster who then through some really sophisticated language and social engineering in those emails, otherwise tricks an advisor 
into wiring funds out of that client's account. That's one of the major concerns that we have uh, in our own business. And uh, you know, if I could do anything, it would be around increasing some awareness of that. But this too goes back to the very basic thing that we mentioned earlier, which is just be suspect of everything that comes into, into one's inbox. But maybe what I would add on to that, and this is specific to wire fraud and wire fraud prevention is, you know, we have technologies. I imagine other, other custodians have technical capabilities as well for advisors to submit those instructions to us electronically. We call it e-authorization on our own platform. And when using that, there are layers upon layers of defenses um, that, that are built into the processes, the technologies that stand behind that type of transaction. To date, they've proven to be impenetrable. We have not seen a single instance of fraudulent uh, or wire fraud by way of a, through an, an advisor using this type of uh, technologies. So that one keeps us all up right. at night. And uh, we, again, we see it too often. It feels like our message isn't getting out there. So that would be one thing I'd bring some awareness to in addition to what we talked about today. Great. Heather, I know a lot keeps you up at night, but as it relates to cybersecurity um, and, uh, and DB Root, what keeps you up at night? I think, I think it's, it's the threat of another breach, um, and, and perhaps this one would result in some sort of a data incident where the end client is, is harmed. Um, I think that that's, that's probably first and foremost um, that keeps me up. And, you know, it's human error. We're all very busy. We fly through emails. We open emails very quickly and not read them. Um, and hopefully one day that doesn't result in a, a bigger error that could have been prevented. Right. I think that's that's spot on. I think for, you know, all of the RAAs that are, are listening in, you know, that is their, uh, their fear. I mean, Eric talked about all these breaches at big corporations and even our own uh, SEC. Uh, and if those organizations with all of the spend uh, that they do every day can't avoid um, a breach, you know, the RIA uh, certainly has a challenge. You know, I, I'm, I'm fascinated by this conversation. If you, if you look back at what we talked about over the last 45, 50 minutes, very little of it was actually technical. You know, when you think of cybersecurity, you think of these hackers with, you know, hoodies and at right. some dark basement and they're typing code. And that is certainly going on. But the defenses to that are often just management and people issues. And I think it's very interesting that most of this conversation hasn't been about intrusion detection software or right. network scanning or vulnerability scanning or pen tests. Those are all critical. But at the end of the day, we all go back to what Adam was saying, which is trying to look at it as a people problem and, and, and a training problem. And, and it's interesting that that non-technical side of cybersecurity is so important. Yeah, it's a great point. I'll tell you from my perspective what keeps me up at night, and I am not by any means a technology person. Um, so I don't have anywhere near the degree of competency or experience that you guys do. In fact, at Dynasty, um, we have something called the Friedman Principle, and that is if the technology can be used by Ed Friedman, it is easy and simple enough for anybody uh, to use it. But what keeps me up at night um, in that perspective is we have no idea what the next threat or the next um, attack might be um, and how that might change. When I uh, started um, in the business, an email was introduced. We were told, don't click on a file 
that's attached because you don't know what's in that file. Well, the vast majority of malware now is not necessarily with an attached file. It still exists, but that's changed uh, an awful lot. I asked you somewhat facetiously, Eric, the question about can we hack a face, right, on facial recognition. But it's that next level um, for these criminals that, you know, again, uh, we, we call this catch me if you can, and I don't know that we really will. Uh, to any degree, be able to catch them. And the concern is that they're smarter than the last solution that we put in place. And as technology continues to evolve, the hackers evolve. Exactly. I, I think they just move along with us. And so, you know, that earlier question about whether our face is, is going to be hacked, the answer is yes, because everybody, everything else has been hacked, right? So, you know, it, it's just a matter, again, of going back to the basics, the blocking and tackling. So to close out, and I know each of you kind of gave uh, some ideas in my last question about what keeps you up at night, but I'm going to ask you to each give one idea or one thought that you would like the, uh, the folks listening in to either think about implementing, utilizing, or um, considering uh, as it relates to cybersecurity. So I'll mix up the order a little bit. I'll turn to you first, Heather. Um, I would say probably the two most important things that you can do is invest in some sort of a cybersecurity consulting engagement. Um, and from there, and if not before that, make sure that you have an adequate cybersecurity policy in place. Great suggestion. Eric? Train your people on good cybersecurity hygiene. That's what I would say. Passwords. Train and test. Train and test, right? So passwords, phishing, all that stuff. Um, it's very important because to Adams, and it's kind of interesting that we're circling with his initial point, you can see your people as a weakness, but you can also see it as a strength. And so as, as this kind of, I think you called it a, a kind of evolving firewall or something of that nature. So the people are a critical part of it. Great. And Adam, if any of our listeners are running a centrifuge uh, out of their home, no, I'm kidding, obviously, about that. I hope so. But <laughs> what's what's your kind of top thought that you'd like uh, the listeners to walk away with? Eric said it, I, and I think that's that's it right there, and I don't even want to try to improve upon that. The, the focus on one's people, training, education, empowerment, creating awareness, I, I framed it as a culture of cybersecurity. One doing those things, I can assure you, will pay massive dividends with, within an organization. Well, great. I want to thank uh, each one of our guests, Heather, Eric, and Adam. You guys have been exceptional in providing ideas, insights, uh, and even some, some personal stories uh, related to cybersecurity. It's an incredibly important topic. It is one that we will continue to be discussing, uh, not only on this podcast, but in the industry uh, in general, because the protection of data, the protection of of our information is uh, paramount. And I want to thank each and every one of you for tuning in and, and listening. I want to thank our guests for their great comments and insight. And I want to thank you for tuning in and listening to our podcast. I hope you found today's episode entertaining, informative, and helpful. And if you have any comments, questions, or would like to connect with Dynasty or any of our guests, please contact us at podcast at dynastyfp.com. That's podcast at dynastyfrankpeter.com. We look forward to you joining us on our next podcast. And until then, remember, at Dynasty, we live our American dream by helping you realize your American dream.